0: That's Stamps.com. Code program.
1: Campsite Media. Hello,
2: can you hear me? Right, okay. Hello? Hello? So, what do you want me to say? it's
1: just, um... Hello?
3: Camellia. Season four.
1: Scam, likely.
4: A production of Campside
3: Media. Oh. <laughs> One thing that really struck Dave, Chris, and Dylan once they'd gotten deep into the scam and subpoenaed thousands of internal emails was the total lack of remorse. There were emails that call center managers sent to their employees that sounded like a football coach pumping up his players. Find more victims, rip them off, take every penny you can get. For the scammers, targets in faraway America were nothing but ATM machines they could hit up for cash. Jayesh and Pawan, the scam callers I met in Borivali in Mumbai, they weren't that different from the other scammers at first. They didn't tell me they enjoyed scamming, but they didn't hide that they were perfectly OK doing it. In their early days on the job, as they got better at converting targets into victims, they felt the thrill of success, not the pangs of guilt. The money was good and the victims were suckers. Period. But a few weeks in, Pawan was on a call with a target when something changed for him, like the flipping of a switch inside. He was trying to scam a young woman when she told him her kid hadn't eaten the day before. Until that moment, Pawan had assumed that everybody in America had money. It was a default assumption for scammers and a convenient one. The woman told Pawan, I'll try to borrow money from a friend. I know I need to pay this.
2: So I thought, now it's getting too much. Okay, so I told her, wait, because that call was recording, okay. So I called my manager that I'm, I don't want to scam this client because she don't have money. I told him that I'm disconnecting this call. So he take the headphone from me and he scammed her. So at that time, <laughs> I got very okay. angry.
3: The manager seemed intentionally cruel, as if he wanted to teach Pawan a lesson. Pawan had told him the victim couldn't pay, but the manager had still taken advantage of her. It was sickening. Pawan told Jayesh what had happened. The two were a team. They had decided together that they would take this job. Now, they made another decision.
5: We were actually talking to each other quite maturely at this point of time. And after this incident, uh, we decided we'll not work. We'll just come out of 100, around 85 to 90 people who already knew that this was a scam. So not scamming anyone was not a big deal on the floor. So we stopped scamming to people.
3: That sounds like they quit, but they didn't. They kept coming to work, kept taking the bus in the evening to go to Mirror Road, kept taking the elevator to the sixth floor kept turning in their cell phones before getting to their workstations. They still talked to targets who called in from the U.S. after hearing they owed back taxes to the IRS. But while talking to the targets, Pawan and Jayesh abandoned the script they were given. We used
5: to call. We used to talk. We used to have all the fun. Time passed. We used to talk to a lot of different people. There were some military men, some bankers to talk to them, he used to share knowledge, he used to tell them where we are. We have told this information to a lot of people in America that we are actually in Mumbai. We are in Mimar, Mira road. Uh, could you come here? Could you stop this?
3: Which is to say that Pawan and Jaish were revealing the scam to those they were supposed to be scamming. Hey, we're not the IRS. We're in Mumbai and this whole thing is a con. When they had started working, the two had been told that all phone calls on the floor were recorded by a central server, and that every move of theirs was under surveillance. It was yet another security measure the bosses had put in place, apparently, to ensure that the scam wasn't put at risk by any of the employees. And Pawan and Jaish were doing exactly that. But weren't you worried because these calls were getting recorded? No, actually these calls were
5: recorded manually. It was not an auto-recorder. They used to tell us that every call is recorded on the server. But I guess after working there, after knowing everybody, after knowing the process I told you, I was very curious how this works. Okay? After knowing every part of the business, I was quite sure these calls were not recorded.
3: What Pawan and Jayesh had figured out was that the spiel they had been given about surveillance at the center was just talk. A lie told to the employees like the lies that the scam callers told targets to get them to follow orders. That revelation was liberating, and it helped Bowen and Jayesh move to the next phase of their plan. They weren't just going to stop their scamming. They wanted to blow the scam up.
2: And, and now what happened? We already did so much scam. <laughs> now we cannot return the money, right? We cannot make it settle, okay? then we decided we will bust this entire call center okay and karma will help us we
3: will bust this entire call center for karma okay so this was a sort of repentance strategy yeah. Yeah. that yeah. this way this way we will make amends correct for this crime that we have been doing yeah From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cam Likely, the fourth season of Chameleon. Chameleon. I'm Udijit Paracharji. Hello.
5: Hello. You have to make an immediate payment. I the minimum
2: amount is $2,000. $2,000. $11,000. $11,000. Oh my God, I mean, come on. Hang up the call. Just be on the line.
3: Thank you. Episode 5 Tell the Cops. Pawan and Jayesh knew that merely telling targets that the call center was running a scam wasn't going to bring it down. If they wanted to make that happen, they had to get the authorities involved. And not the police in India, who they suspected might actually be a part of the racket. How else could the call center be operating so brazenly? Their best bet, they thought, would be law enforcement in the United States. And they wanted to go to the top. To Pawan, That meant going straight to the FBI.
2: So first I called FBI. Okay, so I called FBI. I told them I am from the IRS scam company. I want to pass the information that I am in Mumbai. So they are laughing at me.
3: (laughs) Not quite the hero's welcome that Pawan was expecting. So that wasn't going to work. But then, Jayesh remembered a conversation with a target, someone who had figured out that Jayesh was a scammer. She had told him, she was going to report him to the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission.
5: So I Googled it, I read everything about FTC. I came to know what FTC does.
3: Which came in handy now that Pawan and Jayesh were looking for someone, anyone, in the US government to hear them out.
5: So that's when I actually recollected, you just called FTC.
3: So Pawan calls the FTC, says, I'm reporting a scam. I work at an IRS scam call center in Mumbai. The person who speaks to him says, you need to call a lawyer at the FTC named Betsy Broder. As part of her job, Betsy helps to fight international scams and frauds that target Americans.
1: I was sitting at my desk on our office on Pennsylvania Avenue, just right between the Capitol and the White House. And the phone rang, and it was a young man with an Indian accent. And he asked for me by name, as I recall. And I said, yes, that's, that's me. And he said, I'm working in a call center in Mumbai. And we are calling Americans. And I'm feeling very badly about it because we're taking their money.
3: Yep, it was Bowen. And unlike the FBI... Betsy didn't laugh.
1: You know, I was aware that there were these types of calls that were going on, but I was a a little bit shocked, you know, to get this phone call really out of the blue from this young man. He identified himself as Adam Smith, and I said, I I just refuse to call you Adam Smith, you know, for so many reasons. But he didn't feel comfortable sharing his name because he thought he could compromise him. He might um, get in trouble with his employer. So I asked him, well, what does your grandmother call you? And he said, Babu, which I guess every Indian grandmother calls their grandson Babu. So that's what he was to me.
3: Betsy wanted to hear everything this Babu had to tell her. But she was skeptical. You don't just buy everything a whistleblower has to say.
1: I'd worked long enough in law enforcement to know that when you're contacted by someone who says he's working for a target, you have to be very careful. So my first concern was that he was calling on behalf of this call center on Mirror Road to see whether they were under investigation, to see whether any federal agency was looking at them. So I just listened, I took a lot of notes, and I thanked him very much.
3: And then, all of a sudden, it seemed like Betsy was on an entirely different call.
1: We were just talking and he was telling me about some of the people he had victimized, and then everything changed. Then he said, well, you need to go to the CVS store on Arlington Road. He knew exactly where the closest place was. And buy these um, gift cards because you owe us $8,000, $800, whatever it was.
3: Pawan was making the call from the call center and his manager just appeared on the scene. Betsy figured that out almost immediately. But even though she knew that Pawan was just pretending to scam her to fool the manager, His words on the phone were frightening.
1: And I'll tell you, I knew what was going on, and I started perspiring. You know, just when he was telling me this, I could understand how someone who didn't understand that it was a scam might be totally taken by this and have a sense of panic because they tell you the police are on their way. If you're not a US citizen, you're gonna be deported. And so he went into his script saying you need to do this, otherwise the police will come and, and you will get arrested and blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, we went back into our conversation once his manager had moved down the line and could no longer overhear what he was saying.
3: The incident left Betsy a bit shaken, but it also convinced her that this Babu was probably telling the truth. She wanted to know more, and she wanted to speak to other callers at the call center. So Pawan connected her to Jayesh.
5: She used to call every day at 5 a.m. Every day while we used to go home from work, I used to talk to her. I used to tell her what we did all day.
1: And at one point they said that their bosses suspected them of doing something wrong, and they texted me a picture of the hands of one of them showing that he had cuts on his hands from defending himself. I wasn't quite sure how much of this was drama and how much of it was true, but they would wait until they were in a safe place to talk.
3: Jayesh told her that they didn't want to keep pushing their luck for much longer.
5: I used to tell her that we are just going to leave this company in the next few days now. Yeah, so
3: that, that's that was it. Betsy concurred with them that this was a good idea. By now, Pawan and Jayesh were deep into their roles as informants. Betsy had referred them to a federal criminal investigator, not Dave, Chris, or Dylan, but someone who could record their official statements in case it ever needed to be used as evidence. The call centers Pawan and Jayesh had been working at were now exposed to the authorities. But the two best friends weren't the only ones ratting them out.
1: You're listening to Scam Likely. More after this.
0: Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke (laughs) girlie? Some peasant Coke? No.
3: Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.
5: You're listening to Camellia from Campside Media.
3: In September 2016, a senior police officer in the city of Thane, India, who I'm going to call Sanjeev, found out about an informant who had recently made a startling claim. I'm not using Sanjeev's real name because he wasn't cleared by his bosses to speak to us. The informant told the Tane police he had learned of a call center on Mirror Road that was scamming Americans. Callers at the center were claiming to work for the IRS. Here's Sanjeev. So the first reaction from our side was, what nonsense is this? He thought the tip was BS. Americans were smart people, Sanjeev thought. How could this kind of phone call ever get them to hand over their money. I
4: mean, why would they fall for something, something of this kind? I mean, that, that not possible. It, it won't happen. I mean, if someone calls citizens of India and uh, give them this kind of story,
3: nobody would fall for it. In fact, Sanjeev thought the informant was giving the police fake information just to get paid. That is, the informant was out to scam the police. It happens all the time. He was brought to me,
4: and the kind of story he gave that was... I mean, not believable, you know? You understand there are people who try and come to police and fleece us,
3: I'm telling you. By the way, this informant was neither Pawan nor Jayesh. It may be hard to believe, but at the very same time they were having secret calls with Betsy Broder at the FTC, some unrelated person was ratting out the same call center. We don't know who this guy was, because the Tane police does a good job of protecting its sources. All we know is it was someone who appeared to have had easy access to the Miro Road call center in spite of all the security. Sanjeev met with this informant and heard him out, but he wanted some hard evidence. So he gave the informant a camera and a recorder and told him to spy on the call center on behalf of the police.
4: And he roamed across all the floors, five floors, six floors. He was talking, he was sitting there, and he was hes sitting while uh, the call was going on. The footage showed
3: what you've already heard about, the thing Sanjeev was having a hard time believing. Young men and women in India calling Americans, convincing them to hand over their money. The scale of the operation was bigger than anything he could have imagined. How could something like this be going on under the nose of law enforcement. Did it surprise you that so many call centers were operating because some people might argue that how can something so massive in scale be going on and the police is completely unaware? Uh, Perhaps there were some officers in the lower rungs who were aware, some people who might have been complicit. I mean, that's a fair question to ask, don't you
4: think? uh, I, I understand your question, I understand the thought behind it also. Uh, uh, let me be very, very honest with you. There's a lot of crime that happens here. There's so much of work out here, there's so much of uh, policing work out here. Police are already overburdened. And this law is set into motion only when someone is wronged. You, you understand, I mean, if someone comes to the police that I've been cheated,
3: Only then the the law will be set into motion. He's saying the police are under-resourced in India, which I can appreciate, having covered the crime beat there as a newspaper reporter in the mid-1990s. From investigating murders and armed robberies to policing street fights and providing security for visiting politicians, police forces across India are under constant pressure. But even more to the point, Sanjeev explained... Since the victims of the scam were not in India, the Tani police had not received any complaints. Why would they have started investigating? You have to understand why scam call centers in a large Indian city like Mumbai would be tough to detect, even with a well-staffed police. For every call center running a scam, there were hundreds of legitimate call centers. From the outside, they all looked similar. The people working at scam call centers were low-level, white-collar employees. They badged in, badged out, got salaries. They had office parties. They got vacation and sick leave.
4: They are going in their uh, office a shirt and trousers. Why would somebody believe that some uh, illegal activity is happening there? Why would somebody believe? I mean,
3: no reason. And- Not our domain. Not (laughs) not the domain of the police. (laughs) It just wasn't the police's business to walk into office buildings and eavesdrop on calls being made from there. Sanjeev knew the only difference in this case was that a police informant had found out about the scam. It was by just luck of chance,
4: I mean, throw of dice, I just said, why don't you go and get get me some footage? I mean, I could have just told him, you go get lost. I mean, I, I don't buy this bullshit.
3: After the recordings came back from the informant, Sanjeev and his colleagues began investigating in earnest.
4: Then we came to know that there were three call centers in close
3: proximity, and uh, they were running throughout the night. Not one call center, three different call centers. Sanjeev estimated that there were at least 500 people, if not more, working there. And
4: if we had to nab them, we would need a big team and a big preparation.
3: To nab them all, the callers, the supervisors, the bosses, that was going to take some doing. They were going to need dozens of police officers to make the arrests, to seize the evidence, to make sure that no one got away. That's after the break.
5: You're listening to Camellia from Campside Media.
3: Before Sanjeev could execute a takedown of the three call centers on Mirror Road, he needed to plan everything out. The police had a good sense of the layout of the offices. From all the recon they had done, they had a precise handle on when employees came in, when they left. What Sanjeev now had to do was choreograph the raid in exquisite detail. Three to four days, Constant
4: preparations were going on with a small number of people. So our informants and our uh, underground operatives, they were going to the places, seeing what time the call center starts, what time it closes, so that entry would be smooth and
3: would be able to catch the maximum number of people. One problem was the big metal gates outside the building where a lot of the scam callers worked. Those were closed most of the time. Sanjeev didn't want to create a scene by forcing the gates open, which might have alerted scammers inside and allowed them to flee or destroy evidence, or both. So, we did not want that to happen. We wanted to catch them, you know, I mean, uh, with a hand in a cookie jar, right? He wanted to catch them red-handed in the act, scammers with headsets on, intimidating targets in faraway America. From their surveillance, Officers had learned that the callers took a break at two in the morning. That's when they came out of the building to get a late night snack or drink tea and then head back to their workstations by 2.30. That was when the police would strike, Sanjeev decided, when almost everybody had returned to work feeling refreshed and the gates were still open to let in the last few stragglers. There were three buildings in the same neighborhood within a half kilometer of each other. Sanjeev had assembled 200 officers for the takedown. They would split up in teams. Most of them didn't know exactly what the operation was. When the day of the raid finally arrived, Sanjeev organized a briefing for a select few colleagues. So the
4: briefing on that particular day to those officers and men was very limited.
3: He was worried that word might leak. He had to share details on a need-to-know basis to keep the operation as much of a secret as possible. But what the job was, that was thoroughly explained to them. Hours later, well after midnight, the three teams were in position, ready to enter the call centers. As it got closer to 2.30, and the employees returned to their floors, the police swarmed. they took control of the metal gate. Officers marched into the three venues almost simultaneously. And we smoothly
4: sneaked to all the six, seven floors and uh, to all the people in custody at the same time. And all three places, this activity could go on very well.
3: Sanjeev was mostly on the outside, coordinating the raids and giving out instructions to the team leads at the three buildings. The callers inside were very much mid-scam. And so, did you actually, when you went in, did you, were there people making calls like while you were entering? Absolutely. They were on the phone. Absolutely. <laughs> Hand in the cookie jar, that's what I said. <laughs> and so, Sanjeev didn't shut everything down immediately. He wanted to see the scam in action. He was amazed to find that there were English tutors at some of the call centers, giving callers lessons on how to converse more fluently with Americans. Sanjeev wanted to hear the calls firsthand So he and his fellow officers told a few of the scammers, keep going. We made those guys make calls in front of us.
4: (laughs) And we actually listened, I mean, what the responses were. So I mean, it was a big learning process for us as well. Never seen anything of this sort. No complaints made anywhere in India of, of this particular kind. We did not know anything of
3: this. They arrested everyone present. That meant the callers and supervisors and floor managers But Shaggy, who the police had identified as the mastermind, was nowhere to be found. Some of the callers feigned total ignorance of what they had been involved in. What scam? We thought we were contracted by the IRS. Sanjeev wasn't buying it. I
4: mean, if you personally ask me, I don't believe 1% of it, right? I mean, they were getting about twenty, twenty-five thousand 25,000 as a salary, and for every fleecing, they were getting a percentage. So, uh, I mean, you cannot defend the position and uh, say that they uh, they were innocent people.
3: After all, if you remember, these scholars had been told it was a scam when they were being hired. All of them, every single one, would have known what they were doing. In any case, the police had too much to do that night to have the time to listen to these claims of innocence. Officers had a ton of evidence to process, Hundreds of computers and phones and digital data. 15 to 16 hours
4: without any food, without any refreshments, throughout the night and throughout the next day, we're just uh, seizing these people, seizing the documents, seizing the
3: electronic evidence. An even harder part was figuring out how to take all the scammers into custody. There weren't 500 employees, as the police had initially estimated. There were 700 the police needed to get their fingerprints and statements and find room for them in jail. So it was a huge
4: logistical task. You know, transport 700 people from one place to another place. in itself is a big thing. We took them to some school and we placed all those 700 guys in the school. We had to cook meals for them. (laughs) And all their uh, latrine washrooms, we had to arrange everything for that.
3: The raids on Mirror Road took place on October 4, 2016, just as Dave, Chris, and Dylan were making the final preparations for a crackdown on the American end of the scam. U.S. authorities say they tried to collaborate with their Indian counterparts, but when I asked Mike Sheckles about it, one of the DOJ prosecutors overseeing the case, he basically shrugged.
6: Without getting into the weeds about all the internal processes, we ran the traps you would think we would to try to see what could be done.
3: I and have no doubt, yeah.
6: None of it sort of, I think, was as useful as we had hoped.
3: Yeah, but was there even kind of a lip service paid, or was it simply like, <laughs> can't hear you, you know, like, What was the response? like? How would you characterize the response? Was it simply like royal ignore, like emails go unanswered, calls go not received? Or it was like, oh yeah, we're looking into it. That's an interesting case, sure. You know, just give us a month and we'll get back to you. And then you call in a month and they say the same thing. And finally, you you realize that you're getting a no. Yeah, I don't know that I have anything helpful. To, to add on that. At this point, the public affairs staffer from the DOJ piped in with a point of protocol. The department doesn't comment on conversations with law enforcement in other countries. So, had it just been a coincidence that the raids led by Sanjeev at Mirror Road happened just as Mike and his DOJ colleague Hope Olds were finalizing their 61-count indictment? just as Dave, Chris, and Dylan were gaming out the arrests? Mike and Hope, they didn't have a lot to say about that either. So you guys were planning the takedown here when this raid happens. What went through your minds? Mike and Hope exchanged a look. Then they both smiled at me. I knew what that meant. I wasn't going to get a very clear answer. I don't know if that's fit
6: for podcasting. (laughs) <laughs> there were a lot of complicated dynamics with that, and frankly, you know, diplomatic issues, political issues, law enforcement issues. Um, it was curious timing for us, for sure, because you know, there's a certain amount of vetting when you're doing an international case where the department wants to publicize what they're doing, and so you always, as information about what you're planning gets spread further you lose control of maybe what happens to that stuff. And so it was, we've always believed it was very interesting timing that they sort of did that right when we were getting ready to have the first real, you know, splash of this kind. And I'll just leave it with that.
3: Had someone on the U.S. side tipped off Indian authorities to the big operation they had in store, were Sanjeev and the officers in Tani trying to upstage U.S. law enforcement and attempt to show that they were taking scamming seriously. As you might expect, Sanjeev thinks that insinuation is just plain ridiculous. He says the Indian investigation originated entirely from the intelligence developed from the informant. And to be fair to him, one could just as easily ask a question that would annoy U.S. law enforcement. Why did the American authorities plan the grand finale of an investigation they'd been running for years, just weeks after the Indian police swung into action? I talked to some other sources about the timing of what was the biggest ever raid on call centers in India, and I think Sanjeev is being honest. His investigation had developed independently, without any contact with Pawan or Jaish. He and his officers were not, in fact, trying to get ahead of Operation Outsource by busting a scam call center they'd known about all along. But that doesn't mean Sanjeev and the Thani police were operating in a vacuum. Indian law enforcement was under a lot of pressure. Betsy Broder of the FTC had been talking to Indian officials about scam call centers for years. And when Mike Shekels at DOJ said they ran the traps, that meant letting some people in the Indian government know US authorities were looking hard at scam calls. Without that pressure, would Sanjeev have gotten the go ahead for such a massive raid? I honestly don't know. Pawan and Jayesh themselves don't think their call to Betsy led to the takedown. But they also don't believe the call centers could have been operating without the knowledge of at least some police officers. I believe personally
5: that entire Miradut uh, police police means the one responsible, the one who has control, already knew that this is happening. Yeah, yeah. The, this is not something which, which cannot be hidden. if there are there is a building and there, there are people who are working there, I believe for us even even us, we know when there is an office, we know that this this is the office and this is the work happening in this office. even if we have not we are not the police officers. And if it is a police officer, I am sure he knows
3: everything. No, but they'd know that it's a call centre, but they yeah. may not know what
5: what, what is being centre? done. Yeah, exactly. So at least police officers would know this basic knowledge. That there is a call centre and they walk at night. What do they do? Yeah. Here police officers don't even leave a, a smoking shop. Just a guy who makes around 500 rupees in a day. They don't even
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> spare, spare
5: them <laughs> and uh, how can they spare these guys? See, <laughs> it's is not possible. <laughs>
3: What Jayesh is getting at here is corruption. That there must have been cops, even if Sanjeev didn't know, who would have come by the call centers to shake them down for money to collect what you might call a police tax. That happens to local businesses all over India, especially in big cities like Mumbai. Pawan and Jayesh would know because they now run their own business. It's not a call center. They help other Indians find the best rates for auto insurance online. In the end, the raids at Mirror Road didn't have much of an effect on the American investigation. Because that takedown didn't drive all the US-based scammers Dave, Chris, and Dylan were tracking into hiding. Maybe after all those years of operating, they didn't think lightning could strike twice. But the guys who gave a shit were finally ready to pounce.
0: It's better for us to hit a house when a person's still in bed. Right? They're not awake. They're not, they don't have their wits about them because they're in dreamland, right? So when that door, you know, you hear police with the warrant open the door and you startle that person awake, the, they may or may not think to run over and grab that gun.
3: That's next time on Scam Likely. Million is a production of Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment. Scam Likely was produced and written by Eric Benson, Johnny Kaufman, and me, Utijit Petacharji. Callie Hitchcock and Win Lai Tremuyn were our associate producers. The show was fact-checked by Sarah Ivry. Sound design and original music by Mark McAdam. Additional music by Samba Jean-Baptiste. Special thanks to Campside's operations team Aliyah Papes and Doug Slavin. The executive producers at Campside are Matt Scher, Vanessa Gregoriadis, Josh Dean and Adam Hoff.